This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people, but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. And today I'm talking to Sandy Shaw about what it's like to be a Eurovision winner, the Smiths, and while she's not moving mountains, how she's actually moving rivers. Sandy, thank you so much for giving me your time this evening. I really appreciate it. And there's loads of questions I want to ask you. But before we get into what is, in my view, a quite extraordinary life, how are you getting on in lockdown? I love it. (laughs) Sorry to say, I live in paradise type place and I've got a gorgeous husband and I've got all my kids on Zoom. And I just, I can get on with things. I've been catching up with everything that I've wanted to. I love being in nature and not being disturbed by anyone or anything. I take time out at different times of the day to listen to the different birds. I've always been a bird freak. And I spend a lot of time chopping trees and trying to fit in a little bit of work in between and spending time on the building site with really cool builders. (laughs) Very good. But you will go gently with me, Tom, here, because you do realise I'm a virgin podcaster, don't you? I didn't know this is your first ever podcast. It's my first time, so you be gentle with me. I'll always be gentle with you, particularly because you once told me that your nickname used to be SS Invincible, which always makes me chuckle. (laughs) It makes me chuckle too. I never (laughs) knew that until recently. I did a festival. You know, Lord March does festivals at his place. I did a, a curated a women's show for him. And Tony Hatch was there backstage. You know, the guy that wrote yeah. Downtown and everything. Yeah. He said, oh, wow, it's SS Invincible. I said, I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> he said, that's what we used to call you behind your back. <laughs> and he came clean. That's very brave of Tony Hatch to do that. Yeah, well, he's old enough to be brave. He's been married to Jackie Trent. You would be brave after that. <laughs> so yeah, we've gone on from your lockdown. And before I came on today, I, I listened to you again on Desert Island Discs. And there was a couple of things in there you said. You said you like the feeling of being all on your own. Do you still feel like that? It sounds like with lockdown, you're quite enjoying it, being locked down with your husband in that rural idyll you're in. Well, I'm an only child, so I've been brought up to like isolation. You know, I don't mind my own thoughts. I'm really quite happy on my own. I like being with my husband because I always say to him, it's like being on my own with you. And he's an only child as well. In fact, my first husband was an only child too. So I tend to gravitate towards that. And is that because you've always, you know, I mean, your first number one hit at the age of 17, 
the world at your feet, very famous people in your life, a whirlwind really. Did you manage to find that kind of solitary part of a life back then or are you catching up now? I hated it then, it was awful because I wasn't choosing to be on my own. I could just see people. I would be driving past places and I could see people in their homes in the lights sort of getting on with the old the shucklemucker of family and everything else. And I was incredibly lonely, mostly lonely, not just because of that, but because I was surrounded by men all the time. All the time I'd go for years without seeing a woman. And it was hard being that young and not being able to talk with anybody at all about anything meaningful. Did you know that at the time? Were you conscious of that? Or is this something you've only learnt about yourself in hindsight? No, I was conscious of it at the time. I was desperately lonely. A lot of women that I've spoken to over the years have experienced that, but less so nowadays because you get a team together that travels with you and does things with you. And do you think the music industry is still like that today? A bit better, mm, you say? It's quite a lot better, yeah. There's some fierce women out there frightening me. <laughs> yeah, and actually you're still fighting for the interests of songwriters and musicians through the Featured Artists Coalition. And you don't have to do that. What drives you with that? Is that just a sense of responsibility and obligation to that wider community you're in? Or is it just because you're a natural fighter? Well, I do come from Dagenham. <laughs> you know, Dagenham's yeah. got a history of women fighting for their rights and equal pay and everything. And I remember back in the day when I first met Barbara Castle, I thought, wow, that's the kind of woman I want to be. Probably people don't know who she is nowadays, but she was responsible for actually making the Equal Pay Acts happen. So I always felt a kindred spirit with people like that, women that could do that. But with music, it just happened. I do it because I love it. I love music. I love the purpose of music. I love its function in society. I love the way it connects people, brings people together and this is wonderful shared communal kind of church really and also well I was asked to do it and I found out that I was really good at doing it I was first asked to be a director and it was a bloody shambles and nobody would talk to us they said that we were the Taliban because we were making trouble (laughs) and so I think within like a year or less than a year probably six months they asked me if I'd be chair but knowing what the business was like, I said, I agree to do that, but I want to have Ed O'Brien from Radiohead as my vice, and I want to have Nick Mason from Pink Floyd as my other vice, because I know that people don't respect women as much as they should, and they probably won't listen to me first because of my background of being a popular music singer. They just Men in the industry have never respected female artists in the past. It's only recently they've had to because we sell more records now. Shark at me, records. <laughs> uh, I actually got the radio of the wireless the other day. Yeah, so they were such good friends with me and I learned how to be a chair with them. They gave me such support. First of all, Billy Brad did. He kept saying, go on, Sam, you can do it. And I said, oh, Billy, I'm so frightened. I'm going to say the wrong thing. He said, of course you will. That's what you're there for. So don't say the right thing. You said what you feel. And I got into a lot of trouble at first with the old guard of the music industry for saying what artists say amongst themselves, which I thought was common knowledge, but they got really quite upset about it. But then I I learned one by one to make friends with each person that was upset and realised that they were just trying to defend their territory. It was a birthing of complete fire. 
but I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And then I had an idea that we should do an international one, that it can't, we can't just be British. So we started collecting countries that wanted to join us, that heard about what we were doing. And, you know, we collected France and Spain and all the other countries. And then we started the International Artist Organisation, which I'm still on the board of that, which is really interesting because artists from different countries have different types of cultural instinct. It's great. It really broadens your mind. And from there, I said I'd had enough. I felt I was too old. I thought I'd done like the first part, the breaking in part, the pioneering part, everybody knew AFAC then. We were accepted as the artist's voice and people were clamouring to come and join us by that time. And the people began to realise that we are the heart of the music industry, that it doesn't exist without us. So why are you treating us like shit all the time? Mm. And why are we paid less than anybody else? There's only like a handful of people earning all the money. It's not properly distributed people can't really make a living and had become so commercialized over the years it wasn't like that in the 60s it was people sang for the love of and played for the love of doing it that they felt actually through the music they were changing the world and that kind of had been lost in the commercialization of it and the big what they call it how do you pronounce it beer moths what do you call them yeah beer moths yeah yeah yeah, yeah. moths of, of record industries were taken over and they had no connection or love to music just their connection with their shareholders so things had actually changed so much and I felt that I'd got to the point where it would run on its own feet and I was very tired to be quite honest and so I asked if I could step down and they said well yes but you have to be the honorary president <laughs> right. It's a deal. <laughs> That's an all-encompassing role. But of course, uh, I mean, with artists, with COVID and live music in Britain closing down, I mean, we've got many artists now that, you know, we're trying to find food of, to put on the table for them, which I know is a great concern. It's always been like that, though. you know, that people don't realise that most artists have two jobs. You know, yeah. they have, you're trying to build your portfolio, you're trying to build your image up, and at the same time, you're waitressing. Or you're, you know, doing some data work for some company that everybody has like double jobs or you're, you know, delivering food takeaway. And so basically they're losing everything, all forms of income. So at the moment it's really difficult. I mean, it takes a long, long time before you are able to support yourself, if ever, through music alone. I mean, the other part of your story is that there you were you know, the world at your feet, the height of your powers, numerous number one singles, pretty financially secure, and then you lose it all for various reasons that were not related, you know, they're not down to you, and you end up living in a caravan in Ireland. Do you still look back on that with sort of pain and the anxiety that that must have caused must have been incredible to you? Yeah, I, I was completely lost. I, I couldn't understand why I'd got myself into that situation. I had that old, you know, the old school way of thinking about marriage, like stand by your man, that sort of stuff. And I felt that when he was using all my money and losing all my money without asking me, I thought that was part of being married. And like it was like a real wake-up call to me that that's not how it is. And in those days, you know, we had to share tax so he was responsible for my tax, which wasn't being paid. And I just, it was an awful time. I was with my mother-in-law in the caravan and my daughter. 
And we used to go down to Navan, where there was a wool shop there, and we used to buy short skeins of wool. So we used to sit in, in the caravan and we knitted squares in all different colours, all rainbow colours, as a sign of like our hope or our, you know, wishing for something to turn out okay. And they were all bright colours. Then we sewed them all together and we made a quilt out of it, which I still have. And You've still got the quilt. I use it every evening when I watch the telly. I put it over my legs. And when the kids come, they want to use the quilt. It's like, whose turn is it for the quilt? <laughs> wow. I mean, it's, got, it's loaded with meaning. Every single tear, every single piece of pain is in that. But when I have it now, I think, wow, I came from there to here. <gasps> what? How amazing. How did I do that? How did you do that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. We all did it. It's such a long time ago now, and it's such... Um, I really learned my strengths from that. I've learned so much, so much, so much about life. I've rebuilt every single part of my life, every single part from that time. So the only reason that I'm so amazingly happy now is because of that, because that happened to me. If it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't be where I am today. What did it give you? That This gave you a, a mental resilience that allowed you to face the future. Not just a mental resilience. It helped me to understand what had happened, how life works. And it was just like an eye-opener. Oh, you know, so that happened because of that. And that gradually lots of things came to light that I hadn't known about, that I had to learn to deal with one by one. And, yeah... Did, sorry, did you... I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm going back into that place and it's horrid. And I am sorry to take you there, but uh, it's such a fascinating, the sort of highs and lows of your early career. It, I mean, they would have finished other people off, but you got through many setbacks and many very great high points. And that's what I find so fascinating about you and particularly talking to you now because... You know, even though you're quite reflective, you're very stoic. You know, you you could have cause to be very angry and very bitter about a lot of things. I still not stop being angry, but I turn that anger around. I use it to fight for justice or to fight for things that I think could make life better, not just for me, but anybody else. So I, I that anger is channeled in that way. Is that what brought you to the Made in Dagenham movie? Because I think that's a lovely story, that you come from Dagenham and you end up doing the, the song for the, the film, which I think is a beautiful film. Well, it was produced by Steve Woolley, who's the partner of my husband number two, who sadly died now. But he was, like, so much my best friend. He's such a great husband. My favourite one, I always say. My favourite ex-husband. And so Steve knew me so that he approached me knows my background and he said do you know Billy Bragg I said yes of course I know Billy Bragg he's on the board with me at FAC and so he um he said I'd like you both to get together and do a song for this I said of course I will it's like doing it for my sisterhood of course I will so that was quite an enjoyable thing to do it's a great thing and then you do that you do the I've got to ask you about the Smiths I'm sorry you must always get asked about the Smiths but obviously I'm a 53 year old bloke who you know, that's my teenage years. And you've got a very big soft spot for Johnny Marr, haven't you? I've got both a soft spot for both of them and the guys. The Smiths weren't just those two people. They were the Andy yeah. and, yeah. Johnny's like, you know, he's little like pocket Venus. <laughs> what he, would be that in a pocket Mars? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> when he used to be on stage with each other. 
I thought, oh, I wish I could shrink down to there because I feel really good <laughs> next to him. And are you still in touch with them? Yeah, I was seeing Johnny. You know, he's like, he's part of the whole movement now, the whole music movement. So I see him through that. And Morrissey, I never see. He's not the man that I knew when he was younger. Yeah. Well, he was a young man then and he's matured into something else. But I'm sure if I actually met him, I could um, bring out the best in him. I think you could bring out the best of him. Do you think you could also bring back the band to reform? No, never. That would never happen? I don't know. I don't think so. I think Johnny's learned that he can sing too. You definitely can. And Morris's musical output has never been as good as it was, as you know, with Johnny. He he was like a real leader, I think, with the, his guitar work and his ideas about production. And I, I think he was so underrated at the time because Morrissey was such a charismatic character. Yeah. It was through Morrissey I found my adopted son. Tell me that story. <laughs> well, I was up doing Good Morning Britain in Liverpool. Yeah. I think I was promoting Hello Angel. And there was this guy at the door, this young guy, wanting to talk to me, a fan, obviously. And so he came in and he said he'd found out about me through the Smiths and blah, blah, blah. He was just so gorgeous. And it turns out he wanted to write plays. He was 15 at the time, I think. And he'd just written one. He said, could I send it to you? I said, well, why would I want you? He said, because he said it's based on, on Morrissey, on William, and it's on the school curriculum now. I said, oh, really? <laughs> so he sent it to me. And then he felt he needed to come out, and he was scared of telling his mum. So... We arranged that I should go and have dinner with his mum and him and he would tell her while I was there and holding his hand under the table. Oh, no. That's... Anyway, so, so we, we, he was 16 by then and uh, instead of doing it himself, he just got and went to the toilet. He said, oh, you do it, you do it. So I told you, so, yeah, I know. Such <laughs> a lovely story. So anyway, what he'd done in the emails and stuff and letters that went between us, he kept saying, adopt me. So I said, all right, and I, we met, and I said, I adopt you, I adopt you, I adopt you. That's oh. it. So he's still my bestest, one of my, yeah, I, I call him my adopted son. He's gorgeous. He's a lovely, lovely guy, and he's still writing. He's done, oh, he, started, he did the first lesbian kiss or the first gay kiss on Brookside. Yeah. I remember <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And and he's uh, doing lots of stuff for CBBS now that uh, you know it's helping kids understand things. Yeah. Um, so he's he's doing great. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, 
and here you are now, Sandy. You've got builders in. You're doing the house up. You're drinking a glass of rosé wine. You're near nature. Have you got any more artistic ambitions? Are you still writing songs? Do you write lyrics? No. I'm a good lyricist. I still, in the morning, I always wake up and I make up a song or a story straight away as soon as I'm awake. <laughs> Is that right? Do you write it down? Of course not. I used to just do it for Tony oh. to keep him happy. <laughs> I bet Tony loves that. A lot of the lyrics are quite rude, but they, uh, <laughs> anyway, so I do that. But the thing is, I found doing the architecture such a great way of being creative, of actually yeah. working with the environment. And I did it. Like, you make three albums. I approached it like that in three sections. And the architect, was that when you say three sections, you mean you sort of realised there were sort of three chunks of time. You allocated yourself to that. You knew there were certain things you needed to... You were very sort of organised and driven, sort of a long-term plan. Yeah, yeah, I did. The first one was to adjust the environment to get the best out of it because over the years it had been not looked after as well as it might. So I moved the river which was interesting because I had to start working with the environment agency and it looks absolutely beautiful now. It's supposed to be like a wildlife reserve, to be quite honest. Yeah. There are very few people in the United Kingdom who would think, I've got a vision, but I've just got to move that river a little bit over there. Yeah, and everybody around thinks it's fantastic. I keep getting people from the village are going down to it a lot now because of COVID. And so they have their walk down there. I'm getting all this feedback. I love what I'm doing down there. So the, your community has sort of been opened up to nature with, with the changes you're exactly, making. Exactly, exactly. So every, every, every decision I make, it's like how it looks for that. Is it going to be pleasant if they come? All that sort of thing. And I spent lots of time actually looking at where the sun came, what times of day, where the wind came from. It's just actually so the place is totally and utterly embedded in its landscape and each complements the other. So you're describing an existence in life where you, you, you're in the moment a lot of the time. You're very, I can see you're very close to nature. It's like minute by minute, there's, you, you, from when the birds are song of the particular type of day. I've also learned a lot by watching nature about how time is and the eternity of life and just the wonderful patterns that life reflects back at you, that nature reflects back at you and is so calming and so it makes me feel really looked after by the world, by the universe. I feel very protected and loved by it. And there's an upside of lockdown for me, very similar to that. So I sort of remember the day the swallows came back from Africa in the neck of the woods that I live in. And the day the jackdaws in next door neighbour's chimney when the chicks hatched and the <laughs> birds on the bird table. Just those little sort of signs of the seasons changing and you know, specific points of nature are in your own environment where, you know, when you've got busy lives, you don't normally notice these things. And in the early days of lockdown, I think there were many millions of people who were sort of experiencing that moment a bit and they liked it and they'd forgotten what it was like. And I suppose one of the tricks is how do we keep that going when we're all back to our busy lives again? Well, I won't have a problem with that. But but I've seen people going up the lanes and everything, taking pictures of cows, I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, to remind them what they look like when they go back. Oh, that's a cow. Oh, I must go home and show this to mum. It was like, yeah. I've just seen a cow. So it's, that's kind of really sweet. I love that. I don't know what's going to happen, actually. Uh, we were talking about it today, whether we'll 
reached a point of like a new normalcy or I remember when I was a kid, every summer, because my mum worked, I used to go and stay with my auntie Marge in the country, the woman that she was in the army with during the war. And um, auntie Marge had a chicken farm there and I used to spend all the summer there and used to love it, watching her bake bread and all that sort of stuff we used to do in those days and walking in the meadows and the, and the fields. So that was what was in my heart, really, not the urban life of Dagenham. And where we lived in Dagenham anyway was on the fringes of the countryside at that time. And so it's almost like returning back to that place inside me. So I haven't lost that. It's something that I've always wanted to go back to. And my kids always take the piss out of me because they they call me the Howard's End lady. Because (laughs) when I saw the movie, even the opening scene, I started crying. And I said, that's me! So I don't think people will ever lose that now. It was something, especially kids, will keep in their hearts for a long time. Yeah, and you're very close to your kids, aren't you? Yeah, they're all so different. They're really, they're all bonkers like me. So (laughs) that's why we get on, I think. There's always some drama going on. And have you, were you doing regular calls before lockdown? No. So you've used technology in a different way to commune with your family? Yeah, I have. We used to commune over Sunday lunches. People would take turns to come over and cook Sunday lunch and they'd be given points out of 10. So now they can't do that. So we just do the WhatsApp thing. It's it's nice. I'm even talking to my first husband now. Okay, that's progress. It's huge progress. I feel a kind of, as he said, you know, we've both shared a lot of shit together. That, again, is a unique relationship and we know the awful sides of each other as well as the, you know, so there's nothing within nothing more to find out that's awful. It's no, there's going to be no shock anymore. So, yeah, I really quite understand him and where he's coming from, actually. But time is a healer. And also when you've got the power to reflect, you can be more generous, I suppose. And you were yeah. very young when you first married, I guess. that's Yeah, that. we were both very young and incapable of understanding what was going on because life was like a, a helter-skelter. And then, but on the, the this idea, one of the books that's really influenced me in my life is Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And good old Siddhartha, he ends up sitting next to a river, being a ferryman, where no day by the river is the same because, you know, it's not the same river when you wake. And so I like the idea of you moving a river that is never the same when you wake, but it's always got, a beginning and end every day and it's very different and it seems to me you're in a position in life where you know you're at the height of your powers you're completely self-aware are we ever completely self-aware i don't think so. i've still more challenges to overcome <laughs> well what, what challenge what's your next what challenges i don't you bloody know it's going to pop itself up isn't it it's just going to come from somewhere but i'm ready for it but you've sort of, all these episodes in life, these early challenges, I mean, it's kindness and generosity to your first husband. And, you know, are you going to, what about the times, I mean, the BBC tried to hoof you off Eurovision. Have you forgiven the BBC for that yet? Of course. Of course, it's not the BBC. It was just, you know, how men were in those days. They didn't know their arse and their elbow. You know, they just, they were like that. They had no understanding of anything. 
but that was just the times. Tell me about the time. You did stuff with Scott Walker, didn't you? Was it Frankie Howard? The Frankie Howard show you did stuff with him. Tell me about that. What kind of producer put that together? Frankie Howard, Scott Walker and myself. And do you know what Scott and I did? We rebelled. We rebelled against it by singing Jack Brill songs. (laughs) (laughs) But you had a lot of collaborations over the years. What was your best one? I mean, the best one was with the Smiths. I just... It totally opened my life up. I thought, God, this is what I always wanted, was to be with a band like this. Yeah, because it was so cool. And (laughs) they loved listening to me. It was just lovely. They were just such huge fans. Morrissey was copying everything. I couldn't do anything. Like, he'd pinch my musicians or he'd find a producer I'd work with. And everything was like an homage. It was made me feel so good about myself. Nobody had ever done that to me before. And that gave you a sort of another little boost, didn't it? And it wasn't a march to you, really, wasn't it? And it was that time where didn't they do a gig where they were all barefooted, sort of out of respect for the sixties <laughs> iconic image of you barefooted? Yeah, and they used to dress me before I went on stage. Did they? <laughs> yeah, That's such a great story. That. <laughs> but that was, you know, after that, I I wrote an album called Hello Angel. I just started discovering myself, to be quite honest. Everything opened up at that point, and I was starting from scratch the way I wanted it. I was doing university tours and things like that. But at the end of it, I thought, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be away from home. I don't want to rebuild my career. I don't want this. And um, I decided what I did want was to learn something. So I decided, first of all, I thought, well, let's write this down. So I wrote a book which was about my experience of being of the 80s, and picking out some experiences that were part of a karmic pattern from the 60s and 70s and trying to actually put it into some kind of harmonious space. And after I'd done that, I thought, I really want to know what makes people tick. People are sometimes so nasty with each other, and I wonder why they're not happy and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I thought, I'll study psychotherapy, which is what I did. And I went to university and... um, I sat with, actually, for, for years, I sat in, a, a, we were in groups for some of the training. And at the end of these years, one of the girls came up to me. She said, I've just realised who you are. <laughs> <laughs> did she ask for your autograph? No, yes, she did. For all, yes. <laughs> yes, she did. It's really funny. But I've been, you know, in contact with those people ever since. But I kind of grew from there. After I started working, I continued. I did like I ended up doing like five years of training, and then I decided I wanted to do the arts clinic, which was yeah. just for creative people. That was a, a great time actually to actually have the courage to do that and to actually think, oh gosh, I, I do have a brain. I must have. I was able to write a book, and that, I used the book because I hadn't got any um, qualifications other than that. So I gave them my book as a you know, is my qualification. And the arts clinic was a start of a part of life where you're giving a lot back to people. And if you're doing therapy, I mean, that's very mentally and spiritually draining a lot of the time, isn't it? Yeah, but not if you're coming from the right place. I used to like working with adolescents because they're in that time when so much change can be made. And so it was quick turnover. They could, you know, you could see a result really quickly. And then... And I found it interesting working with creatives and people that worked in that area. And 
But nowadays, all the people that I've seen in therapy, I work with, and I have to be quiet, not tell anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I used to see the execs and everything, as yeah. well as the receptionist or the the manager or anybody or the, the film producer. So I see them now, and I can't say anything. And it's kind of like this, like knowing look that passes between yeah. you. Other people have said it to me, like when they have a patient or a client, and they see them in a supermarket. It's the same kind of thing really yeah but it gave me a really broad view of the industry a really broad view of it to know the aches and pains of everybody's viewpoint and did it give you a sense that the music industry attracts a certain type of mind or character no not at all I think what happens is some of the um, environment tends to impinge on them and make them behave in certain ways yeah but I don't think, no, you know, get obsessionals are often drummers, but not necessarily so. <laughs> and, you know, singers are often neurotic, but not necessarily so. You know, it's like anything else, like, you know, control freaks, executives sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, they're like a general sh- shakamaka, but they, they do tend to be people that like are risk takers or the best people tend to be risk takers because that's what art is like, isn't it? That's what you have to do. It's to do with breaking boundaries. It's to do with having no fear, jumping through them, not even seeing them and actually expressing the thought or emotions that people have before they've realised they've thought it so that when they hear it, they think, yes, that's how I feel. So that ability and also the ability to see that in other people in order to help them promote and manage their work. So, yeah, so yeah. risk-taking involved and, and a feel for things to work on a lot more on instinct. That doesn't mean you have the same personality types at all. Because in politics, I always see, you know, politicians tend to be highly motivated, focused people. But if you were doing a psychometric test, a lot of them would fail on the complete finisher section, I think. You know, they're driven by ideas, but they can't necessarily see it through to completion because they're sort of on to the next idea. That's where, that's where the civil servants came in. Yeah, that's why the very best politicians build good relationships with civil servants rather than seeing them as the enemy. I always got on well with civil servants because when I used to go into those government meetings and when I first went into them, they never had artists there. They just had the record labels and the publishers, but no artists had ever been in there. And I'd be listening to these meetings. And I usually had a civil servant sitting next to me and just keep saying, what does that mean? And they say, we don't know, and they don't know either. And I always get, and, then, and they kept writing me little notes, in, you know, pencil notes to, to keep me up with what was going on. I think at the first I had very little respect for the, the people that they were talking to because yeah. they felt that they were, in their view, incompetent. And like you can be kind to the BBC and the males of the 1960s, I, I feel more generous now about politics. I mean, they're all, you know... Mistakes might be made with the COVID stuff, but everyone's trying to do their best, you know, and they're all tired. They're working night and day. They're making 500 times as many decisions without the period to reflect on the best course of action as, or to find that time. And I just feel terrific sympathy with everyone that's trying to deal with that now. And it, it's, it's very hard in those situations. I suppose we all have to go through our learning curves, including, you know, people that vote. And I think what's happened is with COVID, the, the, the different 
you know, there was that divisive thing about Brexit. The NHS has actually pulled that all together again. It has, hasn't it? It's such a unifying force. And yeah. so I don't think if they had the Brexit vote again that we would vote for it. I really don't. It's so interesting, that, isn't it? Yeah. Are you going to write another book? How much? I don't know, but I think <laughs> I think your first book... <laughs> but your first book told a story, but your second book can share your wisdom. Oh, do you know what? I don't think I can be asked. I, I just feel like that about everything that everybody says to do. I was going to, I'm, well, I've got a movie script that's going that I've never, I think I can't be asked to do that. I just, I've lost, I don't want to communicate like that anymore. I just really don't. I just want people, I want people to know me who I know. Yeah. Well, you're allowed to do that. But I don't think, I mean, you say you can't be asked. You've just moved a river in your back garden. Ah, but I was motivated to do that. Didn't I? <laughs> yeah, I in it so. for me. And you're giving it, you're giving it back to you. I can see that. I can see that. Look, Sandy, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. I've drunk my elderflower wine now. I haven't finished. I've only got halfway through my rose now. You see, you, you, you had me in your grip. Well, I hope people really enjoy our conversation because I honestly think you're one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. And I feel very privileged to be working with you. Oh, that's so sweet. You don't really mean that, do you, Tom? I do mean that. And whenever we did those music events together when I was a politician, you were very generous with your time with people and you would share your ideas. And it's a special kind of person that does that. So thank you. Oh, thank you, sweetheart. You're a love. I don't care what they say. You're such a love. <laughs> well, they 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 say it all the time. You just got to learn to ignore it. But you know, no, 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 no. Never, ever, ever develop a thick skin. It is so awful to do that. To retain your sensitivity and have strength of spirit rather than a rhino back is much better. I'm going to have to work on that. Well, I've got a block list of five thousand people on Twitter alone, so I better, <laughs> you know. Let, there might be a better way, but... <laughs> OK, all right. We'll work on it. That was such a joy to talk to Sandy. You can tell she's one of life's natural enthusiasts and passionate about everything she does, be it making people well again through therapy, making music, supporting the next generation of artists and giving something back to the creative industries that have nourished her throughout her long career. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producers are Lucy Pullin and Tim Cunningham. This episode was edited by Matt and Scott at Podmonkey. The music by Tom Gray. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love 
my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. 